Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to John 17. We return to that portion of Scripture that prompted J.C. Ryle to say, the chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it. I most certainly agree with Bishop Ryle. John 17 contains the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. A.W. Pink said it well also. The prayer we are now about to meditate upon is a standing monument of Christ's affection for the church. In it, we are permitted to hear the desires of his heart as he spreads them before the Father, seeking the temporal, spiritual, and eternal welfare of those who are are his own. This prayer did not pass away. This is important. This prayer did not pass away as soon as its words were uttered or when Christ ascended to heaven, but retains a perpetual efficacy, even now, as we worship. The prayer contains three parts. The first part is the prayer of Christ for himself or the glory of God. The second is the prayer of Christ for his disciples who would become apostles. And very closely connected, in fact, overlapping the third part is Christ's prayer for us, those who would come to faith by the witness of the apostles. Three parts of this prayer that takes up John 17. Today we study the first part, Christ's prayer for the glory of God. Hear God's word as I read John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by the power of this prayer, the words spoken by the Lord Jesus, and the fact that this prayer has a perpetual efficacy. It's still effective today, Lord, even as I pray. Lord, I ask that you would give your people here gathered an even more vivid picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be drawn into a love that is unfathomable before. Lord, that we would sense the security that comes from being yours, yours who you have given to your Father or to your Son, faithfully kept us and given us back to you. Lord, thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I find it a joy to listen to mature believers pray. Older believers, those who have walked with the Lord for many years, men of God, women of God, hearing them pray, listening to the specific way in which they pray, what they have learned over a lifetime of studying Scripture, living Scripture, being with the community of faith, having ups and downs, and then the way they pray, the choice they make in their words, I find great joy in listening to what they have to say. You know, the prayers of our elders every week are a great blessing to me. Because of the personal experience, the thought, and the biblical consideration these brothers use in crafting their prayers, going on our behalf before our Heavenly Father. 
You notice that the prayers of a mature believer, just like the prayers in Scripture that we looked at last week, they're a balance of several things. It's their personal passion for a certain outcome that they bring before the Father. But there's also a sense in which they desire to be in accord with God's will. They have a desire, but they recognize that what's best would be God's will. Maybe not their desire. And they pray in that light. And so they ultimately pray for the glory of God, whatever the outcome may be. In that, in effect, we would, our will, would be in accord with God's will and for his glory. Well, the perfect picture of this is in John 17. The wisest man to ever live, the Lord Jesus, the God-man himself. Prompting one author to say that Jesus prayed to be glorified in this passage that we're studying. Not for his own sake, but that the Father might be glorified in our, in your salvation. So he prays for his own glory so that the Father would be glorified by saving us. This is what's at the heart of what Jesus prays. We would do well to listen, to sit around this prayer once again. Consider it depth. Let's look at it very simply, brothers and sisters. What is Jesus asking for and why? Uh, verses 1 through 5, the first portion of this long prayer of Jesus in John 17, and they reveal to us, verse 1 and verse 5 anyways, what he is asking for. It's the, the basic request of Christ. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And here's the request. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That's like one bookend to this opening part, portion of the prayer. Then verse 5, look what he says again. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in essence, his request, his petition is for the glory of God. And remember what makes the prayers of the Bible great that we have studied, made them so noteworthy, is they pray for the glory of God ultimately. And Jesus here is praying that God the Father would glorify him. That is, God the Father glorified God the Son. And in return, the Son, by doing what the Father has given him, will bring glory to God. He's praying for the glory of God, the Father and the Son, to be glorified. It's not a subtle way. He says it outright. And glorify very, very simply means to exalt to a glorious or elevated condition. Someone is glorified by bestowing honor or praise or admiration upon them. It's to elevate them so that they can be admired and celebrated. And Christ is saying, lift me up to be celebrated so that you might be celebrated, that you might be glorified, God the Father. There's much to unpack in these verses. Let's look at verse 1 and then verse 5 individually with a closer eye. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven Let's not forget that verse, the chapters 13 through 16 leading up to this contain what's called the upper room discourse. It starts in verse 13 when Jesus, the creator of the world, gets down and washes the feet of the disciples in chapter 13. He celebrates the Lord's Supper, transferring the Passover meal into the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, which is he himself, the Passover, signified, saying that he would have to die. Now, the brothers, the disciples, are a bit confused, no doubt. So he goes in chapter 14 through 16 and gives this discourse, this teaching that is supposed to help comfort them, knowing that he will leave soon. 
And it's some of the most profound, most comforting words. Listen to just a few highlights of chapters 14 through 16. Just listen as I read some. 14 verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have not told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again. So he gives these words to encourage them, having previously denoted that he will be leaving. He will be dying for them. Later, John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. If you had known me, you had known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So he brings us into relationship. He reminds them that they don't have to be troubled because they know Jesus, so they know the Father. They're right with the Father. That's John 14, leading up to this prayer that we're studying. Later in John 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. So he promises to not leave them alone when he goes bodily, but to send the Holy Spirit to bring to the remembrance all that he had taught them. This is all, these are all words of comfort to the people of God who are scared at this moment. Jesus is going to leave us, they're thinking. But he continues in chapter 15 in this discourse, in the first verse he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 5, chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you could do nothing. So stay close to me. I may be leaving bodily, but you could stay close to me because the Spirit of God will come. And you know me, now you know God. This is the teaching that precedes the prayer we're studying. Verse 12, chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay his life down for his friends. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says to them in that upper room, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Fear not. Send in the Spirit. You have each other. I'll be with you. You'll be right with God. Be comforted, he says to them. And in chapter 16, just before we get to the prayer we're studying, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. And so now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So after this time of washing their feet, celebrating the Passover, claiming itself to be the Passover, that he'll lay his life down, he'll send the Spirit, they're still fearful. They're still in need of comfort. So then it's in that light that in verse 1 it says that after saying these things, he lifts his eyes to heaven and prays in the second part of verse 1. Look there with me. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Now, this doesn't mean the, the next 60 minutes after he says this. But, but rather, we have now arrived at that long appointed time for something monumental to be accomplished. It is the hour. The, the complex, complex of events that have been prophesied, that have been forecasted. Now, this is the time for them to begin. The hour has come. So the eons have been waiting. The prophecies have been speaking for over 2,000 years. We have been waiting from the time of Abraham and the covenant and all that happened before him, the prophecy in Genesis that there would be one sent to crush the head of the serpent, Jesus himself. All of it, the hour has come. Now it's come. I'm here. Now it is at hand. 
Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And how does this happen? Well, Jesus glorifies the Father by his perfect life in his death on the cross. Now, there's mutual glorification. The Father and the Son are both glorified by Jesus doing this. But primarily, Jesus brings glory to the Father because of the life he lives that God requires of him. Requires of all of us, but we couldn't do. So when he does it, he brings glory to the Father by his life. Then when he goes to the cross, agreeing to take the cup of wrath to his own lips, to go to the cross, he brings glory to God by paying for the justice that had to be paid for, by meeting God's standard. He brings glory to God by his life and by his death. Well, how does the Father then glorify the Son? Well, he accepts the sacrifice and he raises Jesus again. See, the resurrection is a picture of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. So he glorifies the Son by raising him. If he was a fraud, if he wasn't who he said he was, he would not be raised again. The resurrection makes all the difference because it shows the credibility of the son's sacrifice. So the father glorifies the son by raising him and not stopping there, but placing him at the right hand of himself in heaven. The ascension. Jesus glorifies the father by his life and his death. The father glorifies the son by raising his son in seating him, exalting him at his right hand. The hour has come, Jesus says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. And this glory will come as Jesus now gives himself to the hands of evil men to suffer, to die, to be buried, to be raised, and to ascend into heaven and to send his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5, as we see what Jesus is asking. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, what Jesus is asking for is for resurrection and ascension. He's asking for the glory of God to come ultimately as God raises him by accepting the sacrifice and exalting him by placing him back in the place he was before he left heaven's throne for us. This is important because there are some who will say Christ is not God. He's just a great teacher. What this evidence is, is the co-eternality of Christ. He existed before the world began and was created. He sat with the Father, but in agreement with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he leaves his throne temporarily, giving up independent access to some of those attributes of God for a time to save us. And ultimately, he is placed back with his Father, where he belongs, co-equal with him. By asking for himself to be glorified, he's putting himself in equal level with the Father. The glory that I had with you before the world existed. In essence, Jesus is praying for the complex of events that would now be happening. His suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And you notice he prays as though it's absolutely going to happen. Because it is. Uh, God can pray this way. And he does. He prays for what will happen. His ultimate securing of redemption for us. He's saying, don't abandon my soul to shield. Well, why would God the Father grant this request? We've looked at what the request is for the glory of God, and then more specifically, of course. But look at verse 2 and verse through, through 4, the verses that are between those two bookend verses. Why should God the Father grant this request that Jesus asks? He's asking to bring glory to God through his impending death, resurrection, and ascension. Why grant this? Verse 2, since you have given him, Christ, authority over all flesh... To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We could see at least 
two things there, two reasons why the Father would grant his request. First, God gave Christ authority over all flesh. And this is by virtue of Jesus being the very agent of creation. It's accurate to say God created everything, but it's even more accurate to say Christ created everything. Colossians says, Paul writes, all that the Father, or excuse me, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's Christ. By him all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. So he has authority over all flesh just by virtue of the fact that he is the creator. Everyone is under his authority. They may not acknowledge it, but he is Lord over all. But it gets more specific as to why God would grant his request, not just because God has given him that authority generally, but he's given him a specific authority that you see in the second part of verse 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, The Father has evidently given him some for eternal life. He gave Christ authority to give eternal life to all those the Father had given him. This is why in John 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus speaking. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Nothing, nothing, nothing accents the glory of God more than his absolute sovereignty over the affairs of the creation, including the eternal destiny of each human being. Jesus prays for the glory of God, then goes on to accent why God is so glorious. Because he is absolutely sovereign over men and their salvation. God gets 100% of the glory in the redemption of men and women. Salvation is totally, totally the work of God through Christ. What about man's will? What about his choice? It's an honest question everyone asks at some point, and they should. I think, though, when well-meaning people talk about the necessity, they say, of man's free will to choose Christ for salvation, they are overlooking the biblical reality exhibited here and throughout Scripture. And I don't initially fault brothers and sisters who earnestly think salvation somehow hinges on their choice. I think people who believe this truly think the notion of human choice somehow aids the concept of the fairness of God. I believe it's a genuine thought. I think people who believe this think the genuineness of God's love is somehow proven by giving us a volitional stake in salvation. But the biblical reality, as we have it revealed to us here and in other places, but most vividly here, is that the overwhelming testimony of Scripture testifies differently. It says this, if we have any essential stake in salvation, we are robbing a portion of God's glory when all the glory belongs to him in him alone. This is what Christ prays for. Jesus isn't asking for partial glory from the Father or most of the glory from the Father. He's asking that God receive all the glory as he accomplishes the work completely. 
Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Why should God grant his request? We've seen two reasons, but a third can be found in verse 4. Jesus earned God's favor and acceptance by his perfect obedience. That's what we see. It's his righteousness that provides the righteousness I need, you need, to be accepted with God. Glorify me because I glorified you. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth. That's, that's by his manifestation of deity in his life, in his obedience, his works, what he did. Verse 4. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. His work was to do God's will, to obey him perfectly, and in so doing, draw people to himself, both then and then the people who would come after, those of us who read of his testimony now, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit testifying. Listen earlier in John, what he says regarding the mission God had given him. In John 4 it says, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Later in John 6, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to, the will, to do the will of the one who sent me. Luke 19 gives us insight, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How does he seek and save? By providing the perfect sacrifice necessary to save those the Father had given him. He finished the work. Now he would go to the cross. He prays for this as he goes to the cross. He is so certain of the accomplishment of God's will that he prays as if it has, uh, it has already been done. Well, let's ask the question. You know what he asked? Why would God grant it? Was his prayer answered? Emphatically, yes. Let me give you four ways in which it was answered. First, his death was 100% effective to save his people, and so it was glorious. He says, chapter later in John 18, verse 9, of those whom you have given me, I have not lost one. Later in Revelation, a reflection of the glory of Christ, no doubt, it says, then I looked and heard around the thrones, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands, thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell and down and worshipped. And he's depicted as the Lamb. And what did the Lamb do? He died on the cross for us. The glory of the cross may not be seen at the moment he's on the cross, but when we see God's acceptance of it, we recognize the glory of the cross and the Lamb who was slain and worthy of honor and glory because he died and was 100% effective. Not one person was lost for whom Christ died. Not one. Secondly, God exalted Jesus answering this prayer by raising him to life in the resurrection. I've been saying that, but listen to Peter. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, through Christ, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Did you hear that? Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. The resurrection is, in fact, God's sign of approval and glory due to the Son. So yes, the answer to did God answer Christ's prayer for glory. Yes, he did so through the cross, redemption. He did so through the resurrection. 
But thirdly, God exalted Jesus by bringing him to heaven in the ascension and then seating him at his right hand. Many references to this, but Paul writes in Romans, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So when Hebrews 7.25 says that he always lives to make intercession, it's because he can, because he's been exalted, seated at the right hand of God, and that's a picture of equality with God. The one who's seated at the right hand of the king has the power to put his hand on the sword of the one sitting next to him, or the scepter. The sword and the scepter, both now under the same control as the one sitting at the right hand. So the son is exalted by giving this equal status with the father, ruling from heaven. God exalted Jesus by bringing him to heaven. He rules from there now and witnesses even us worshiping him. Verse, the, first, uh, the fourth reason why we know God has answered this. With the same certainty Jesus spoke of, a work that was still to come shortly in John 17... The same certainty, we know that God will fulfill the answering of this prayer of John 17 and Christ's ultimate triumph when he comes again in glory. Second Thessalonians 2, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That he'll come again and he'll come this time in complete glory. There won't be a question about a baby in a manger, about the status of this person, who his parents were, anything of that nature, he'll come in glory. God will answer the prayer ultimately of John 17, these first five verses when Christ comes again. And this is alluded to by Jesus himself in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So yes, these first five verses, the petition therein is answered emphatically yes by God. And we still will be able to see the ultimate fulfillment of this to come. I end by asking you this question, asking myself this question. How does this petition then of Christ pertain to you and I? Well, the prayer of Christ for the glory of God has two specific ways in which I think it directly confronts us. First of all, it teaches us, no matter what kind of a Bible student you are and how much of this you really get into or how much of it you think, boy, Pastor Tony's really talking about deep stuff. No matter where you are on that spectrum, it reveals a deep reality about your salvation that you can study from now until you die and not come to the end of it. And I would even submit when you go to heaven, you'll still study the depth of the wisdom, the riches and the knowledge of God and Christ Jesus. And you won't come to the end of it. Heaven will never be born. Because you will never come to the end of exhausting what there is to know about God. And even just particularly why he'd save us. So it reveals a deep reality about your salvation. You are a believer in God through Christ entirely based on grace. You are a lover of God because of what Christ accomplished as ordained by God the Father. Your salvation, your eternal life, your redemption is based on a long-settled agreement between the Father and the Son, not because of something you've done or haven't done. Therefore, your security is now and in eternity based on the sure delight of God for the Son. Your security now and for eternity is based on the accomplishment of God's will through Christ. Your security from now and to eternity is one of the chief ways in which God has chosen to bring glory to Himself. 
So the prayer of Christ for the glory of God reveals a deep reality about your salvation. Okay, that's the deep part. But there's another pointed confrontation to us. It reveals a simple truth that we all must grasp. Look at verse 3. In the midst of all this profound revelation about what God has done, for all the depth of the doctrine and theological insight we gain from this passage, please Dear friends, do not miss the simplicity of the gospel message as Jesus says it in verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know God? If you know Christ, then you know God. That's the message. The message, am I elect? Am I? Do you know Christ. Who are the elect? Do you know Christ? That's the answer. How do I know who God has chosen? Those who know God through Christ. You could not know God except for he puts you in union with his son. There's no other way to know God but through Christ. And you can't make that happen. He makes it happen. So either you're sitting here disinterested in which case, there's nothing I can say humanly that will make you interested. Or you're rejoicing because of what God's done and you recognize there's nothing you've done. Or you're a little mad right now. I don't like this. It doesn't sound fair. That's not bad either. Because you wouldn't care at all if you didn't know God. The only reason why you're maybe a little upset with me right now is because it tweaks you a certain way. Well, it wouldn't tweak you if you didn't care. So I view that as okay. But I also ask you to read the words. Holy Scripture that speaks of what God has done. Allow it to humble you in a way that makes you understand it's only by grace that we are saved. And we can only know God as we know Christ. We should plumb the depths of what Scripture reveals, but don't ever get too hung up trying to figure out the deep counsel of God to the point where you lose The simple reality that we cannot know God unless we know Jesus. And Jesus is revealed for us by the testimony of God's word before us. Do you know God through Christ? That's the supreme question. I want to close by praying words Paul wrote, so please bow with me as I pray. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done in answering the Lord Jesus' prayer concerning the glory of God. We use the words that Paul wrote your spirit inspired, the Lord Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, you have highly exalted, and you have bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Lord, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and Lord, that every tongue would confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, our Heavenly Father. Amen.